Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Last week, we transitioned in our study of Romans 8 to verses 28 through 30, and we began to focus on God's plan. God's plan. And if, if you recall back to last week, we began by looking at God's purpose in verse 29. And so look with me there at verse 29. God's purpose, we said, is to glorify his son in making us, us, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, like Jesus. God's purpose is to glorify his son in making us like Jesus Christ. Then in light of God's purpose, we were encouraged by God's promise that came before in verse 28. And that is this promise. All things work together and they work together in this synergistic effort to make you like Jesus Christ. That's a promise. He has a purpose. And therefore, in light of this purpose, he gives us this promise. He works all things. And we concluded that all things mean all things. All things, all the suffering things and and all the prosperous things, all things and even all sinful things under God's sovereign plan, under sovereign control. Think about this. God's love here, we are told, is so powerful that he's able to transform even the darkest moments into rays of light out of which, which ultimately function for good, our good and for his glory. We all experience things under God's sovereign plan. And now Paul says, how do we know this is true? In other words, how do we know this promise is sure? Well, because he revealed it to us in scripture. We know from Genesis to Revelation as we read his word that all things work together for good. That's why he says in verse 28, he begins by affirming this, that we know. We're not unsure. We're not ignorant of these things. We know, but even more so, we know because the proof of this amazing promise is rooted in God's plan, in God's plan. That's why if you look down to verse 29, Paul begins verse 29 with four, four. He gives us ground. He gives us proof for this promise, four. Now, before we begin to unpack and just read this section, I want you to sort of um, think of a visual which might help us throughout our study here. Think of a tree. Think of a tree. Suppose you didn't know anything about trees. And you might look at the tree, and it might appear as if a tree is doing like this extraordinary balancing act. You have all these branches that are weighing down on this little trunk or big trunk. And it's as if it's, it's just coming down on this single trunk. If you didn't know any better, then you would think that with the next gust of wind, this tree is going to topple. Why? Because seemingly everything that's above the ground is just holding onto this one little trunk. But what do we know about the tree that we cannot see? Right? We know that beneath the trunk, is this vast network of roots that grow deep and they pierce through many layers of dirt and rock. And it is these roots that secure the trunk and ultimately secure the entire tree. 
That's the reason why a tree can withstand just severe storms, not only for a day, two, or three, but for hundreds of years. Now, similarly, if we didn't know anything about God's eternal plan for us, we might think that the difficulty and the circumstances that we find ourselves, it would be enough to topple us over as well. Every little gust of doubt or every little storm of uncertainty or trial would completely demolish us or make us feel as if we have been severed from God's love. Well, God's plan is this network of roots, most of which are invisible. Paul says we can have confidence that all things work together for good in verse 28 because of God's plan. For verse 29, God has a plan. And that plan is described in these verses, in verses 29 and 30 with five very loaded words. Words which have been debated and argued over for centuries. But friends, these words were intended by Paul, and more importantly, they were intended by the divine author of Romans to bring assurance and to bring hope and to bring comfort, not to debate over. These words are foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Five words. I want us to read beginning with verse 28. We'll read three verses through 30, and we'll look at these words. Verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's the the main proposition that Paul has for us in these verses. Christian, you who love God, God has mapped out a plan to ensure that you will become like Jesus. God has a plan, and that plan is fixed. He is convinced about what he's doing, and he will bring it to pass. And here's what I want us to be assured of this morning. Behind this plan is God's omnipotence. God is behind this plan. No human being is able to put this plan in motion, let alone fulfill it and bring it into completion. And at the end of our reading and at the end of our studying of these verses, we should sort of throw up our hands and we should exclaim together with Paul, praise be to God. Praise be to God for his sure, sovereign, eternal plan. I want us to consider three aspects of this plan. Three aspects. Number one, God initiates his plan to work for your good and his glory. Number two, God effects his plan to work for your good and his glory. And then number three, God completes this plan to work for your good and his glory. Three aspects. First, God initiates his plan to work for your good and his glory. What I mean by initiates is 
that he begins, he puts in motion his plan. He starts it. We oftentimes think about our salvation and we, we look back to the time when we believed and, and, and we mark this as the starting point of salvation. This is when I became a Christian. This is when I became a believer and rightly so because we as human beings, we are limited by time. We live within time. But God's plan of salvation began in eternity past. How do we know? Friends, it is his plan. This is what I want you to see here in verse 29 and verse 30. It is his plan. Ten times, ten times the personal pronoun referring to God is repeated and intentionally. And although we may say that these words are probably uh, the most important in this context, I think really the most important word is this pronoun that it refers to God. Look with me again at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also glorified. And these whom, or justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, the emphasis is on God. He is the main player. God thought of this plan, not you or I. And second, God activates this plan in eternity past. He activates this plan in eternity past. The first two links of this, of this unbroken chain here was, took place before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world. Like I said already, you know, some of you have been saved for five years, maybe 10 years, 15. Some of you guys are going on 50 years. Praise the Lord. But that wasn't the beginning of salvific plan for you. God's plan goes back into eternity past. Before the world came into being and Adam was placed in the garden, God's plan was already put in motion. Without our knowledge, without our contribution, without our involvement. Consider with me the first big word here, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, foreknew. This is really the term that function as the fountainhead from which all the other terms flow. It is made up of two words. One for or, or pro is before and new or knowledge is to know of something. So before knowledge, before knowledge. And given this truth that we all affirm readily that God is omniscient, right? Because God exists outside of time. He is not like us. He knows all things, things that happened already, things that are now currently happening, things that will happen. God is omniscient. Many people apply this omniscience to this verse 29. They say that man's response to the gospel is the object of God's foreknowledge. In other words, they were to define, they usually define this term foreknowledge as God because he exists outside of time. He looks through the sort of the hall or the 
corridor of time and he sees those who will make a decision for Christ and therefore they are foreknown. God foreknows them. Those who would believe in Christ. And so this foreknowledge then becomes the basis and the foundation for their predestination. This is the idea that many theologians would often refer to as conditional predestination or conditional election. So to put it simply, if you're really going to break this concept down, you or God chose you because you first chose him. He looks down to your decision and based on your decision, he makes his decision. You got yourself chosen. And if that sounds awkward to us, then that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I want us to consider the interpretation of foreknowledge. Interpretation of foreknowledge. Consider what Romans would have thought if this was their interpretation. What the the believers in Rome, both the, the Jews and and the Gentiles there. Remember, we're jumping into Romans 8 without first looking verse by verse through Romans 1 through 7. But I will remind you what Paul already said in the first seven chapters. For instance, in in Romans 1, Paul presents just human plight. He says, man actively suppresses the knowledge of God. Romans 1.18, right? That's what we do. That's what we do in our sinful nature. We suppress the knowledge of God. It is revealed to us in in creation, but we actively suppress it. In chapter 3, he goes on to say that man does not seek after God. We don't care about God in our natural state. In other words, there's never a time when we get to a point where we choose to care about God. We cannot care about God. And if that wasn't clear enough, two chapters later in chapter 5, verse 10, Paul clearly says that men are enemies of God. Enemy. We were at enmity with God, and God takes the first step. God is, takes the initiative to reconcile us to himself. We don't do it. He does it. Chapter 5. And then here in our context, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, we study that the mindset on the flesh is hostility towards God. Again, the same exact reference to being enemies. We don't like each other. Hostility towards God, for it does not subject itself to the, love of, to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So this is our problem. This is just man's natural disposition to hate God, to not look after him, to not pursue him, we can't. And then on top of that, I I want us to consider this, that in addition to man's suppression of truth, man is under satanic blindness. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 4. He says that the gospel, quote, is veiled to those who are perishing, veiled, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Not only are we naturally dead and blind, we don't want anything to do with God. We hate God. We are also blinded by the enemy of God, by Satan. 
so that we do not see, so that we do not believe. And so if our salvation is based upon God knowing ahead of time that we would believe, how could we possibly believe in this terrible state? That's the first first argument against this interpretation. Second, we rightfully affirm that God knows all things and can actually look down history, throughout history, and see who will believe. He can do that. In fact, he knows everything. But the reference, look with me back in your Bibles in verse 29, the reference in verse 29 is not to our faith or our decision to believe as that which God foreknows. God does not foreknow the decision of our faith. It is not then what he foreknows, but whom he foreknows. It's very personal. So what's, what's the focus here is not on the event of faith. Like Tim believed in April of such and such, you know, month or day on such year. No, that's not what God foreknows. God foreknows Tim. And that is very, very important. What does that mean? Well, this verb to foreknow uh, is used five times in the New Testament. One time in Acts, twice here in, in Romans, and First um, Peter and Second Peter. Many times in the Bible, the word know, to know someone, it portrays this idea of intimacy and love. For instance, Going back all the way to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, we read, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And this term, had relations with, is this Hebrew equivalent of the Greek, no, he knew his wife. In other words, all their translation also say the same thing, Cain knew his wife. In other words, he was, had intimate relationship with her. Jeremiah 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, God tells to Jeremiah, and he says this, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. In other words, it's a special relational knowledge that God had with Jeremiah before he was even put together, before he was even conceived and was ready to be born. Amos chapter three, verse two, here's what God says. You only have I chosen, is what our translation says, among all the families of the earth, but the actual word is new. You only have I known, God says. Obviously God knew of other nations. It's not like he's ignorant of everyone else who exists, no. But this speaks of God's choosing to love to enter into an intimate relationship with someone. In fact, we get the same thing in in Matthew 7. We studied that um, last year, Matthew 7, as we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, verse 23, remember what Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never, what? Knew you, depart from me, you who work lawlessness, all the workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So in this context here, right, foreknowledge here describes how God activates his plan of salvation in that he foreloves. He he chooses to love someone. 
He chooses to enter into a close, intimate relationship with someone. He fixes his love upon us so that we would have special relationship with him prior to us coming into this relationship. It happens in eternity past. He only knows that it will happen and he makes it happen. That's the whole point. He chooses to make it happen because he determines it. Um, Ephesians chapter one, consider these verses. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, when was this plan set in motion before the foundation of the world? What did he choose? He chose us to, to be what? So that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. Here it is again. He did this in love. When did God love us? It says before the foundation of the world from eternity past from eternity past. Last night we were celebrating Thanksgiving, right? And, and we were singing this song before, uh, Sooner Count the Stars. And one of the verses in that song, I was sitting, I was thinking, thinking about this text. And uh, we were singing, all of you guys were singing. So all of you guys were proclaiming this truth. <laughs> and you guys were singing this, before, right, you made the sun, your love was set on us. That's this truth of, of Romans 8, 29. Before you made the sun, your love was set on us. If you're in Romans 9, turn with me to Romans 11. Turn with me to Romans 11. Look at verse 2. Here's the other reference or the other time Paul uses this term in Romans 2. And, and look at the contrast he makes. And I think this, this really brings it home. Paul says, for or God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Notice that Paul contrasts here foreknowledge, not with foreignorance, but what? With rejection. With rejection. If God loves his people, is Paul's point, he will never reject you. If God foreknew you, if God foreloved you, he will never reject you. That's the whole point. Isn't that the point of Romans 8? Go back with me. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 35, who will separate us from what? From love. What love? the love that was set on us before the foundation of the world. That love before the foundation of the world. And if this triune God chose to fix his love on you before the world was, do you suppose that anything in this world can ever sever you from God's love? No. No, it didn't start with you. It's not going to end with you. God is going to bring his plan to completion as we will see in just a moment. Beloved, the reason why God saved us has nothing to do with us. Nothing. He saved us not because he saw something good in us, but for his own purpose, because of his own purpose. We can't comprehend why he would choose to love us. Friends, we only know that he does. 
We only know that he does. And he does so, so that he would be glorified. And the fact that God has fixed his love on us should forever and ever and ever amaze us. It should drive us to worship him and to be assured that because he foreloved us, all things will work together for our good and his glory. That's the point. That's the point of foreknowledge. It roots this purpose and this promise. Because he loved you before the foundation of the world, you can be sure that everything that happens in your life is going to be for your good and it will bring him ultimate glory. But that's not it. There's something else that happened in the initiation of God's plan, and that is for those whom he foreknew, he continues on and he says he also predestined. He predestined. There's another big word in the New Testament, predestination, and it flows sequentially out of foreknowledge. And it also is made up of two words. Pre, right, means before, and destined means destiny. Predestination. So foreknowledge focuses on the love of God for those who are elected, for those who are chosen. Predestination points to the decision God made of what he intends to do with those whom he loves. So what does God intend to do with those whom he loves? He says in verse 29, he predestined, he determined that your destiny would be what? That you would be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He predestined that you would be like Jesus, conformed to his image. And as we saw last time, God's goal for our confirmation into the image of Jesus is bound up in a higher purpose, in his purpose to make much of his son. That's what the end of verse 29 says. God saves us so that we will make much of his son today, tomorrow, and into all of eternity. Christ must be preeminent because he is first fruits. The spotlight, as we mentioned last week, is placed on Jesus. He is first. We are not to make much of ourselves in this life or the next. And this is God's goal for us. That is our destiny. God chooses to love us and he determined that our destiny would be to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The hidden wisdom in the past is now revealed in the New Testament, and he will go on to argue that the wisdom is in respect to God's saving grace to glorify sinners. Beloved, God does not leave his purposes up to chance. We need to learn this and we need to be assured of this. He does not leave his purposes up to us. He declares them and he accomplishes them. In love, he determines our destiny that we would share his glory. You might be asking yourself now, what, what, what motivated God to love us? And back to Ephesians chapter 1, 5 and 6, Paul says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, 
And here it is, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Friends, sometimes we want to know more, but we must search no more than this, than what the scripture reveals. It's his purpose, and it's his will, which results in the praise of his glory. He chose us, and if you know Christ today, praise him. Make much of him. So foreknew and predestined are the first two links in God's divine plan, which takes before the foundation of the world. And again, Paul, the the focus here, right? The emphasis of this passage is that we can be sure that all things work together for our good and for his glory because God himself initiates this plan. It is not left to us. To figure this out, God begins it. God has mapped out a plan to ensure that you will become like Jesus. He starts it. Let's consider the next two links here in verse 30. God, number two, affects the plan to work for your good and his glory. He affects it. He not only initiates and activates it, he affects it. He works this plan out in time. So now we are now beginning to Um, sort of experience what we experienced here in time, in history. These initial stages of foreknowledge and predestination, they are now brought into real time in our lives with these next two aspects. And he says in verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called, called. This is what uh, theologians often refer to as an effectual call. It is distinct from this general call that goes out for everybody to repent of sin and to believe in Christ. This general call we find in uh, Matthew, you might recall Matthew 11 verse 28 where Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, come to me all. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Everybody come. Later on, Matthew 22, he says, many are called, many are called. Come to Jesus. This is the general call. But the call of Romans 8, 30 is a special, it's a specific call. Where upon hearing the general call of the gospel, the spirit of God convicts you in such a way that you begin to see your lostness and your need for salvation, your need for a savior. And cry, or the spirit enables you to, to believe and to be saved. So as the general call comes out, not everybody repents. Not everybody repents, not everyone hears, but the spirit of God enables some to hear. And to be pierced in their hearts is what happened in Acts chapter 2. And to begin to ask questions and begin to seek the Savior that is being offered to them. I'm quoting many passages of scripture to support this and to tell you that this is not the, the sole passage that deals with our plan of salvation. And so I hope that you're writing these things down so that perhaps you can go home and study them more. Write this down, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes this, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, holy calling, not according to our works. In other words, he doesn't look down through the corridor of time and sees our work as believing in Jesus, trusting 
doing so. No, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We are called, friends, those of you who know Christ, those of you who love Christ, you are called because of his purpose and grace. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Do you see that foreknown? Beloved by the Lord. You are in a special relationship with him because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Why are you saved? Because God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this, he continues in verse 14, He called you through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, scripture cannot be more clear than this. The plan starts with God and it is brought into motion in our lives by God. It is the Holy Spirit who inwardly operates in men's hearts and upon men's will so that we will choose to come to Christ for salvation. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again because of this call, because of this effective or effectual call. It is like the call that went out to Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He's bound up in grave clothes. When Jesus called him to come out, Lazarus did only one thing. He got up and he walked out. That's very similar to what happens to us when God calls to us and gives us faith to exercise that faith in the gospel and be born again. Friends, and only God can do that. Because already in Romans chapter four, verse 17, Paul wrote this, God gives life to the dead and calls, the same exact word, calls into being that which does not exist. God does that. It's exactly what happens to us. He calls us in such a way that he opens up our eyes to see that we are a wretched sinner in need of forgiveness. Beloved, we must understand that without sovereign grace, get this, without sovereign grace, manipulative, tear-jerking altar calls would not get anyone saved. One person said this, there is not enough verses in just as I am to get a man to be saved. Just can't sing enough. Or for us, I think maybe is, is more appropriate. There's just not enough verses to manipulate somebody into the kingdom. God must open your heart to believe. You can't pass out all the tracks and have all the revivals you want, a man will not be saved until God calls that man to be saved. This is the glory of God's sovereign grace. In in John 10, you might recall Jesus. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I know them. I'm in a relationship with them. I love them, and they follow me. And he spoke about his sheep who were not yet his sheep, who were not yet converted. He says, I have many other sheep who will come. But my sheep, when they hear my voice, they believe and they follow me. 
What a comforting truth it is for us, friends, when we, when we preach, whether it is from this pulpit or in our neighborhood or going door to door, when we preach the gospel, we know that even though many reject, there are those who will hear, and because of God's sovereign grace, they will be saved. They will be converted. God has a people in this city. God has a people in this neighborhood that he intends to reach for his glory. And that is why we go. We don't know who they are. That's why we preach the gospel far and wide. God has a people. And we trust that promise. And he does everything in order to bring them in. Why? Because when the gospel is spoken, when Jesus Christ is preached, his sheep hear his voice. Paul wants these Roman Christians to rejoice because they have been called, they have been summoned to be in God's fold. And and us too, friends, this is our testimony too. God called us in. And if you believe, and if you love Jesus Christ, you are called. You might be wondering, am I called? Am I foreordained? Am I predestined? Friends, here's a quick answer for you. Do you love Jesus? Then you are. If you love Jesus, then you are. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Are you coming to Jesus? Are you trusting Christ? If you are coming to Christ, he will never cast you out. That's the promise of the gospel. Come to him Flee to Jesus. When you flee to Jesus and when you find refuge in Christ, you are the called. You prove yourself to be foreknown and predestined for this glorious future. These whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. It's a very rich word again. This is really the theme of the book of Romans, the righteousness or the justification of God. Justification of God. In other words, how can God be both just and justify sinners? How can God calls sinners righteous or just? And we know that He can do that because Jesus, the just one, the righteous one, died on behalf of the unrighteous ones. And that's why he can declare us unrighteous as righteous, unjust as just. So God can be both righteous and declare us as righteous. If you're a believer in Jesus Friends, this is you today. You are justified right now. You are completely blameless before the Father because of the work of the Son. Friends, you have no other work to add. You need not work to be right with God. His Son did all the work for us. It is all of God. You have nothing to add. And if you have nothing to add, then the point of this passage is you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear as if something is lacking still. Why? Because you're accepted in the beloved and and the father always accepts the beloved. You are declared righteous 
before God. Church, the point of these big theological terms is just to reinforce the truth that, that your salvation is, does, does not depend on you at all. It doesn't depend on me. It is all of God. Our salvation is part of this unbreakable chain. You can look at all the events in your life and you don't have to worry that a, that a single gust of doubt or your circumstances or your suffering is going to blow you over because you are rooted in God's sovereign purposes in his plan. That's the point of verse 29 and 30. And this gives you great confidence in, in God's comprehensive plan that has as its outcome your good and, and his glory. And that is why, ultimately, we can be certain that we will be glorified. We will be glorified, which brings us to this final point. Point number three, God completes his plan for your good and his glory. In other words, he, he starts it in eternity past. And he brings it into fruition here in time when you are called and when you are justified and now you remain called and justified and it's only a matter of time before he fully completes his plan glorified it's the last word here in in this salvific plan and it means that we will be transformed into the image of christ free from sin we will be like jesus in his new glorified body that is going to happen and these whom he justified he also glorified when will it happen it will happen in the future when the lord returns and our bodies are resurrected to new life if we die or if we see him as he returns we'll be instantly transformed instantly transformed philippians chapter 3 paul says in verse 20 for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body uh, body of his glory we wait for that to happen but our hope is sure he said it right here right for in hope you have been saved in verse 24 and again in second thessalonians 2 14 i read this verse already but listen he says it was for this he called you through the gospel why did he call us that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he called you and justified you so that you will be glorified. He doesn't leave it up to you. He doesn't say he called you just to see if you can make it. And if you make it, hallelujah. He doesn't say that. He says he called you so that you will make it and you will be glorified. It's a sure promise here. Why? God is at work. God is the one who empowers your faith. God is the one who protects you. God is the one who gives you all the resources that you need in order to make it. He called you that you may gain glory. If he left it up to us, it would be hard to believe that this promise would be true. He doesn't leave it up to us. We are called to be glorified. That is our final destination. His work will be complete. I want you to notice something else here. All of these verbs here are in the past tense. Every single one of them. 
foreknew past, predestined past, called past, justified past, glorified past. Glorification is in the past tense, and yet we still await glorification because he already, I mean, he taught us this much in verse 11, right? The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, this is something that will happen, but here he puts it in the past. Glorification is spoken of as something that's already sort of in motion. Beloved, in the mind of God, it is as though it has already happened. Seeing things from his eternal vantage point rather than just our, you know, limited perspective. God sees, as he says in Isaiah 46, the end from the beginning. God sees the end from the beginning. Why? Because he determines the end. And therefore views all believers in Christ, past, present, and future, as already being in their glorified state with him in eternity. That's why nothing is suspect here. That's why he looks at, and, and Paul, knowing this truth, can confidently say, who will separate us from the love of God? And I think if Paul wasn't writing on the scroll that you ultimately just run out of space, he could still be listing 2,000 years later of things that could potentially, but can't ever separate us from the love of Christ. God, friends, is that sure of your glorification. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm going through things and I'm just wondering, Lord, is this going to happen Will this take place? Am I going to be glorified? But God is sure of your glorification. His purpose is fixed because he brings it to pass. And this is how we know Romans 8.28 is true. God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, if, if God can bring the believer out of sin into glory, then surely he is able to use everything that comes into our lives for his ultimate purpose. If he can rescue you from your sin and assure you that you will be in glory, how difficult do you think it is for the Lord to deal with whatever you're dealing with today? Christian, God has mapped out a plan for you to ensure you that you will become like Jesus. You walk away with this truth. What should be our response? What should be our response? Is he worthy? Yes, he is worthy. Our response is adoration. Our response is worship. It is thanksgiving. Here's the thing, friends. Most of us here today, if not all of us, when we were saved, we knew nothing of these terms. Amen? We knew nothing of these terms. In fact, I will tell you that you don't need to know anything of these terms in order to be saved. Amen? You don't. You need to know that Christ died for you. And apart from Christ, you will be damned. So come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, 
And when you get into his word, you will realize that my coming to Christ is actually part of a grand plan of God that did not start with me coming to Christ. There's a song that, a hymn that we used to sing. Maybe we should pick it up again. I'll end with this. My hope is built. Remember that hymn? My hope or sorry, my hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and paid the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting life and light he freely gives. And the final verse of this hymn goes like this. His grace has planned it all. Tis my but to believe. This is really the summation of, of Romans 8, 29 and 30. His grace has planned it all. What do we do? We receive it by faith. Tis my but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. For those of us who recognize his work of love and received Christ, all things work together for your good even the very things you're thinking about right now, and for his glory. Those of you who have not received Christ, all you have to do is understand that you're a sinner in great need of God's mercy, and that great mercy is available for you in Christ. Receive, believe, and enter into this sovereign plan of God and join the church as we await for our final destination which is our glorification. Let's pray. Father, these, these truths are too deep for us to fathom, especially in, in light of how they all relate to our choice and, and our responsibility, but your word is clear. Your word is clear. You have a plan, and you accomplish it outside of time and in time. And so I pray that you would encourage us to continue to believe, to know that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. Help us to believe that today, tomorrow, and until he comes, we ask in his name, amen.